Welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we look in more depth at the passages that we uh, were exploring on Sunday. I'm Dave. Uh, and I'm Brayden. And week. yeah, Mandy's on holidays, hopefully uh, enjoying herself. Um, but uh, so we're doing the podcast today and I'm, I'm sort of in Mandy's chair. So on Sunday, we heard from Brayden and we looked at Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to chapter 19, verse 10. Um, Braden spoke on the better wealth that God provides, and we really got to explore. We got to see Babylon the Great, um, the, the the seduction that worldly materialism and things bring in, mm. and yet the ultimate triumph of God because the Lamb wins. That's which right. If we're going to be banging on about this entire time, <laughs> it's the take home message of the whole series. Thanks yeah. so much, Braden, for bringing that all to us. Do you enjoy doing it? Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, it was really tough book to look at and section of revelation to look at it was a long section and in the end i only focused really on 17 to 19 um which still had a whole lot in there to have a look at so tried to do the best i could it yeah it'd be fun. lovely to do a six month series on this but yeah you know, maybe not <laughs> i don't know um now uh, we're going to look at four questions today. Is that right? We're going to yep, sort of try to have another look over your the section that you preach from. Yeah. Um, so, what are the four questions um, that we're going to be dealing with? Uh, yeah. So, we'll try and look at some of the symbols that are in chapter seventeen, verses nine to eleven. Um, didn't delve too deeply in the sermon into what some of those things might mean, uh, and there's a bit of a historical question in there as well that we can. Have a look at so that'll be the first area then what's going on with the beast hating the prostitute in verses 12 to 18 again of chapter 17 um some of the symbols there but also wise or what's going on with the hating between this beast and prostitute and then during my sermon i said i was just going to focus on one of three different groups that are watching babylon fall uh, so i thought i might uh have a look at the other two that i didn't talk about uh and also, the other two kind of rewards that we see in chapter 19. So that'll be the third question. We're in chapter 18 and 19 at this point. And then right at the very end, I thought another fourth question might be interesting. What's going on with this spirit of prophecy, testimony of Jesus thing happening in, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 19? I think it's a good spot to finish there because I didn't talk too much about this in my... Or I don't even think I talked at all about it in my sermon. Um, but the end result of... This whole passage is the, are those words worship God. So it's probably good to finish there, because really I think that's the, the the finishing punch, the bottom line. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Well, great. Well, we're looking forward to hearing those four questions. So let's uh, get into that first question. What was it again? So we're going to look at verses nine to eleven of chapter seventeen and just see what is going on with some of the different symbols there that we didn't have time to dig too deeply into during the sermon. So it might be good if Dave you could read out um, verses nine to eleven of chapter seventeen and we'll have a look at some of those symbols. Okay, chapter seventeen verses nine to eleven. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast, who once was and now is not, is an eighth king. and He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. I'm looking forward to hearing your explanation for that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how, 
how helpful it really is. Uh, the first thing that really comes up, we'll kind of we'll kind of just go through in order of those verses. The first one that really comes up is the seven heads, uh, seven hills mm. uh, on which the woman sits. Uh, this really is, I suppose, an answer to some people even ask me after church, an answer to a historical question. Mm. Um, what's kind of going on in the historical context of the first readers of the time? And this is quite an overt reference to, to Rome. You know, if we've been talking about Rome throughout this series, this is one of probably the most overt references in the whole of Revelations to say, actually, the superpower we're talking about in the time of the readers is Rome. Uh, the seven hills, Rome is known as the city on, on the seven hills. Well, ancient Rome is known as the city on the seven hills. Um, there's even a coin that you could easily Google that's in the British Museum, uh, a coin where uh, Rome is pictured or personified as a woman lying, like lounging down kind of uh, on, on seven hills during the time of Vespasian, who's Domitian's father, likely Revelation's written under the t- under the reign of Domitian. And so it's pretty relevant um, kind of coin, a uh, piece of archaeological evidence to show that this is kind of what we're talking about. This is the historical period. So it, it's a it's a reference to Rome as kind of this superpower, which is kind of what the prostitute is lying on and she's kind of over at the moment. She's in charge of at the moment. That's what we're sort of seeing uh, in verse 9 there. Okay, yeah. And then we get the seven kings. It's, it's interesting to notice that the seven uh, heads represent both these things. They are the seven hills. It's representing Rome, mm. but it's also the seven kings. So it's kind of symbol, symbolic of two different things, these seven heads. Uh, five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. Uh, What's that? This is a bit weird, and I think it's one of those things, as there are kind of quite a few in Revelation that seem to get debated a little bit. Some people uh, will, some historical readings will try really, really hard to find five kings and five probably Caesars. But often the discussion is, which one do you start at? Yeah, uh, which yeah. one do you, are you supposed to end at? And those sorts of questions. A lot of people want to try and revolve things around Nero. And ultimately, there's just a lot of gymnastics that ends up going on. I think one of the things that we can know is it's referring to power. It's referring to people in power. And it's referring to that classic thing where we're in the midst of the time. So stuff, stuff's happened, we're in the midst of the time, but it's not over yet. So there's still rulers who are ruling in this yeah. way. There's still powers who are oppressing and corrupting and seducing. We're not at the end of it, we're sitting in the middle of it. That's kind of what the symbol is trying to bring out for us. These like powers sort of still scene, exist. It, like, like thinking about the trumpets and the seals and things, how you, you, the last two or seem to have certain significance mm. to it. Now you've, you've got five kings that were, you've got one. So it, it kind of says, I, I think, that idea of where, where you're towards the end, like last days yeah. kind of bit. Yeah. We're up there in the perhaps the sixth, seventh trumpet sort of area, but not obviously not the final judgment. And then it, it does have that sort of feel of going, look, we've, we've gotten a fair way through and we've got a couple to go rather than literally this is, you know, um, Augustus and, and yeah. then... You know Tiberius and then Gaius and then Claudius and that's all right. Those in order. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And 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 what's key is in, in all of Revelation and thinking about the chronology of Revelation and we really want to ask those questions is we are just in the time since Jesus has ascended and before he comes mm-hmm. back and we're just somewhere in there and all these things true are true for for that time and represented in different ways. Yeah, it in would that be point seen, of history. It'd be strange, wouldn't it, mm-hmm. for for so much 
sim- the way numbers have been used symbolically, you know, throughout Revelation. Although, mm. admittedly, the seven hills is, seems pretty concrete, yeah. but just generally speaking, the numbers are all symbolic. So why would they not be? When it's talking about these kings, you know, mm. just sort yeah. of saying, you know, number of past, but there's still some to come. You know that it's being yeah, used and with way. the symbolism of seven to its completeness, its mm. fullness. This is referring to the completeness of the of oppressive power that will occur across history. Mm. But we're not quite there. At the we're end not of quite it yet. at the end of it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, then we go to verse eleven. The beast who once was now is not. So again, we're referring to we we had that reference a bit earlier on in the mm. passage mm. Uh, in verse eight. And I spoke a little bit about that yeah. um, in the sermon on the weekend. We have the same reference. But this time, the beast is called an eighth king, which feels a little bit contrary to what we just said about seven being complete and full mm. and this representing all this oppressive power and then, oh, what's going on. I think it clarifies itself a little bit by then saying, he belongs to the seven. So if you're kind of picturing these seven heads as these seven kings symbolizing the completeness of oppressive power, mm. uh, he's almost like, inside the head of of one of them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's not quite right, but yeah, when it says yeah. he belongs to it, he's not saying he's an extra he's, king he's or an extra head. Yeah. He's just another one of these. And it's, again, it's just another way to indicate the um, the fact that we are just still in this period. It's still waiting. There could be more than seven literal people or seven literal kings mm. that could keep going, keep going, eight, nine, ten, but we're still in this time waiting for it to come to its completeness. Yeah, it kind of does answer that question, doesn't it? Mm. You go, there's an eighth king, but he belongs to the seventh. So it's yeah, like he, he's that's right. he's, he's subsequent, but he's a part of it yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It sort of says, um, yeah, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So that's um, a little bit about those few verses. I guess we can move yeah, to the next question. Yeah, let's move on to the next bit. Well, what's the next question? Um, so we get, into, we get from verse 12 to 18, there's a little bit um, about a beast and kind of, well, the beast hating the prostitute. Uh, that's in verse 16. Do you want me um, to read that? But I reckon if we section? read from 12 to 18, 12 to and 18. We'll, we'll work through okay. um, a few things in there. All right. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, that the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw, where the prostitute sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Yeah, great. So now we're starting to talk about the ten horns, which are part of the beast. Ten horns, seven heads, ten horns. And we're told that these are ten kings who have have not yet received a kingdom, which sort of seems strange if you're a king. Surely you have a kingdom. Surely you have something to rule. Uh, Some historical readings will talk a lot about this being kind of like leaders of vassal states of Rome. Okay. So a lot, not just Rome, but a lot of empires in ancient history, they'll they'll set up leaders to kind of rule areas so that they can put their own kind of king figure say when jerusalem was taken over by babylon they would put their own kind of king figure 
in Jerusalem so that they could have their rule there and that people would know you can't really go away from the rule of Babylon. We're still in charge here. Similar things was happening. So some people will say that that's kind of what's going kind on. Like, kind of like Herod was. Yeah, exactly. Like it's king sort of thing. not their kingdom. Yeah. So they don't have a kingdom, but they're kind of that king of that area. Yeah, even okay. there. Yeah. That would be a very historical approach. Um, the, the difficulty then becomes, well, who are these 10 people? And should, yeah. should we be, we, should we be trying to answer that question? Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I thought I'd read a little bit out from, from one of the commentaries, cause I think he um, makes a good point. So often when we're trying to figure out who are these people, he says, we should reframe the question. The issue is not whether readers can identify the Kings, but whether they identify with them. Mm. which I think is really important because then it brings up the contrast, which I think the passage is trying to, to bring up is that who is our allegiance with? Mm. We get these Kings who make, who essentially ally themselves with the beast to wage war against the lamb. And the result ends up being verse 14, the lamb wins triumphs, triumphs over the beast and these Kings and it's all good. So who's your allegiance going to be with? That's kind of the question that this part of the passage is really putting at us. It's not necessarily thinking about who are these 10 Kings, but look what happens when they ally themselves with the beast. They go down, they they lose. And then we have to ask ourselves, just like that commentary says, do we identify with them? Where, where are we putting our allegiance with the beast or are we putting it with the lamb? And it, it's, it's quite, I think it's even brought into greater contrast when we think about, remember that the beast is the same as the first beast from last week's passage, which had a fatal wound. Yeah. The lamb has been described elsewhere in Revelation as the lamb that was slain. Yeah. So which kind of slain creature are you going to put your allegiance with? Because one of them, we're told, is going to come out on top. Well, even then when you think about the 10 kings, mm. it's like there's 10. Yeah. Right? There, there's, that's kind of a, a, a lot it's not a thousand yeah it's 10 yeah and you know it, it sort of creates a picture you're going to go 10 kingdoms are all aligning with the beast so you look around you go well everyone seems to be going in that direction yeah yeah all of the countries it wasn't it be- wasn't enough that it was a beast versus a lamb <laughs> you've yeah. got all these allies with the all beast, of these yeah. allies with the beast it's yeah. like the, the nations are all lining up over in that direction um but it doesn't matter because the king of kings and the lord of the lords is the one that they're coming up against mm. yeah yeah that's helpful yeah yeah, fantastic. We'll move on now to kind of fifteen and Although, sixteen. This beast yeah, yeah, hating, hating the prostitute. Yeah, What's yeah. going on what with is that? that story? So the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh. I, I know you've read it, and now here I am rereading it. Um, <laughs> but what is going on there? And I think what's helpful, firstly, to remember is a little bit about who and what this beast represents. This beast is representative of oppressive power, of evil, of of even persecution of Christians. And so here you have this prostitute who is trying to, if we remember from a bit later on, she's got this brag of wealth. She's number one. She's always Mm. happy. She's not a widow. She'll never mourn. Um, And then she is... She is this representation of seduction and of evil too. And she's it's almost like you kind of can't have two people or things or objects fighting for evil going on here. One is going to hate the other. They both want to be, I don't know, yeah. the, the king of darkness or something like so to speak. <laughs> and so the beast is is like, just because you're you're kind of riding on my back and doing this doesn't, doesn't mean we're kind of in cahoots. I'm going to bring you down. Mm. As well, it might be interesting that the, the beast has actually just lost a battle. The beast has just lost the battle to the lamb. He probably is angry. He wants to keep on fighting. I don't know. I'm speculating a lot here. But um, the thing that is that is kind of key is 
he he wants to be number one. Evil always wants to take that first place, and so it doesn't actually want to share power with the prostitute. Mm. But then, what is is more interesting is this isn't just some arbitrary battle. That actually, what's going on in the relationship between the beast and the prostitute is governed by God's sovereignty. None of this is happening outside God's sovereignty. Verse 7, if a God has put into their hearts, that is the beast and the ten kings who have made an alliance with the beast, to accomplish his purpose, to accomplish God's purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. God is saying, I'll give you the authority. You can actually carry out the judgment on my behalf. You are the tool in my hand, similar to how Babylon has spoken about in the Old Testament when it brings judgment upon Israel Israel and on Jerusalem. On behalf of God, you're the weapon in my hand. Uh, The same sort of thing is happening here. This prostitute is going to be judged. We we heard all about that in the sermon. And uh, God is going to be using this beast to do it. It's interesting that if even if you've just got a vivid imagination and and, and you, you're originally given the picture that this woman is riding the beast mm. and the beast is wanting to rip her apart while she's riding it like it's it's there's just this um it's like there's no honor among thieves or whatever it's like that there it, when when it's all selfish and greedy it devours itself yeah there's this yeah. this uh, it reminds me of the in the new in the gospels when it says a kingdom cannot be that yeah, that is divided, divided against, against itself, itself cannot stand. Yeah, and you just yeah. think that—that's what's going on. This is a kingdom divided. This is evil divided against itself. It wants number. Evil always just wants to have the top place, and when they're conf- then conflict- conflicted against each other, mm. they're going to bring themselves apart. And, and that that riding image is is as if um, you've got the beast, which mm. is like this ongoing picture of of uh, empire and and forces of, mm. of, of evil trying to rampage across the world. And you go, there's that, there's been different riders on that beast at various times yeah. during, but but there's, a, at this at some point in time, um, now, now Babylon's not just Rome, but as we've talked about, mm. the immediate referent for, for Babylon is Rome. Well, yeah. Rome's, the beast that Rome rides is going to, is going to devour Rome. Mm. Um, and then the one, whoever rides it next is going to get devoured as well. And whoever's mm. going to ride it next is going to get devoured because this is what this is the nature of the thing. Yeah. It's, kind not, of, it's not good, it's evil. Kind of um, gives me the picture of a rodeo. You have yeah. these riders, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. they're yes, going does. crazy yeah. a little bit on the back yeah. of a bull. That bull hates the, the rider being on it and it's trying to do everything in its power to get it off. Yeah. And the, uh, the rider of, on, in a rodeo is doing everything in it, his power to stay on the thing and... They're, they're not in unison no, at no, all. They're no, trying to be in some way, but they're both trying to conquer the other, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, yeah so true. that's an interesting little picture that might, might be helpful. I don't know. Yeah, the rodeo. Yeah, the, ro- the, the rodeo, rodeo of Revelation. revelation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That wasn't even scripted that. Bad. That wasn't, but we just got that. Okay, now, um, question three. All right. What, what we, a couple of times during the sermon, you said, listen, and, you know, r- rightly so, you can't say everything in a sermon. Mm. Um, we might try sometimes, but, but, but we don't don't quite get to do it. But but you're saying you know, a couple of times. Look, there's three things here, and we'll have a look at one. So so tell us a bit about some of the ones that we didn't look at. Yeah, so we'll flick over to chapter 18. So in chapter 18, we have the downfall of Babylon, and then we get to verse nine, and we basically have three groups who who are pictured. Uh, as onlookers to to the downfall, and I made the point. I think it's helpful to remember that they're not those who flee from verse four and five. God commands those to flee, his people to flee. These are groups are not 
the Fleers. They're still in partnership. They're those who have been making their wealth and thriving from being in partnership with Babylon, with the prostitute. And so it's important not to think that they're just standing far off and so they're avoiding what's going on. They're mourning because Babylon's downfall is theirs too. Uh, so the three groups, we talked about the merchants from 11 to 17. The first group that actually comes up, though, are labeled as the kings in verses 9 and 10. So, Dave, maybe you yep. want to read? I'll read. Okay, so it's Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Great, thanks. Um, so first group, the kings. I think we're, we're seeing these people as uh, the representatives of power of the time. If you remember back in 17 verse 2, we got a picture of this prostitute and we're told that the kings of the earth committed adultery. Mm. And I think we've got to realise... The kings here in chapter 18, verse 9, are the kings from 17 to. They're not the 10 kings that we just talked about earlier. They're different. These are those who are kind of in cons- consorts. Is that the right word? I don't know. With the prostitute. And they are basically making their wealth off just being tightly associated with her. They are seeking power. They're the ones in Roman time who would be investing in in Roman times who would be investing in the imperial cult in order to make political alliances, or um, for political gain or power to to move up the power ranks. These are those who are um, basically aiming for success and power and will do whatever it takes and make whatever compromise needed in order to attain that success and power. So it's it's about positional uh, authority for for this group. And they're getting that positional authority by essentially committing adultery in terms of that religious idol worship adultery with the prostitute. Yep. Uh, so that's that group. They don't seem too happy though. Uh, no, they're mourning <laughs> because the loss of their the way they gain power yeah. is up in smokes. Yeah. And they're, they're mourning for that because that, their whole life was dependent on the prostitute and being in consorts with her so that they mm. could, could um, attain that power. Interesting in the NIV translation that they're, they're terrified at her torment. Yeah. Uh, it's, mm. It almost has this feel that they're going, well, if that's happened to her, what's, what's, what's in coming in, in our direction? Yeah. yeah. So that's they're, exactly they're, they're, right. they're mourning. They're mourning over her, but at the same time, they're terrified at there's something that's terrifying that this could happen to, to Babylon. Yeah. Um, yeah. That almost implies a, a fear on their part. Yeah, and this is the sort of thing that I think we aren't, like we're, we get this, I think, a little bit because we look mm. up at politicians, maybe not maybe not so much in Australia, but yeah, in Australia um, and maybe elsewhere in other countries where we see corruption in the leadership of nations mm. uh, and when kind of one falls, the rest are worried that they'll all fall, that their part in it will come. I think it's something like the Watergate scandal where if they all kept their mouths shut, and they probably all would have got away with it, but five, I think, of the seven or something like that decided to out the others because they were all worried about them falling too. And this is that sense where, you know, these people have just been working together toward corruption. And when they see the downfall of the one of Babylon, 
they're, they're mourning, they're, they're terrified. Cards, yeah. They know that they're in for it too. Yeah. Their heads are on the chopping block. That's the first group. Second group, um, 17. The second half of 17, really, uh, to verse 19. Okay, why don't I read that? Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Yeah, great. So this this is the third group. The merchants were the second group, which we looked at on the weekend. This is the third group. The sea captains and the sailors, those who are earning their living from the sea. Uh, it's probably just helpful quickly to mention in this, the transition from 19 to 20 mm. that it's hard to tell and we won't go into it too much now, but I think that's a different speaker. So I actually think 20 marks kind of a new section from 19. 19 is the end of the speech of these sailor people mm. and, and the morning of these sailor people and 20 actually begins the rejoicing that we start to see because this millstone is being thrown into the sea in verse 21. Yeah, um, otherwise, it would be very desolate. jarring, wouldn't it? It would be very jarring. Um, and, and even the in one hour she has been brought to ruin is a, is a, well, a, it's, a fair close-off. And you, that's been the close-off of exactly. every other speech as well, which it is has. indicative of why this is a section break. Yeah. So um, people are confused. Two different speakers is the way we're to yeah, think about it. Yeah, I think okay. so. Uh, anyway, okay, sea captains. Uh, this one feels... The weirdest, because if you go back to 17 verse 2 as well, we actually met probably the other two groups. Mm. We've probably met the merchants and the um, kings yep. before as in, in 17 too, the merchants being those intoxicated um, mm. by the adulteries of yep. the prostitute. But we haven't really had a had a insight into unless you include both these in that group, which maybe you can. That could be fair enough. Mm. Um, but they do seem a bit out of the blue. And so... Who are these guys and what's going on and why are they a third group? Because mm. are they not really kind of just the same as the merchants? You know, the merchants are got all these goods, luxury goods that they're making money off. Mm. Aren't these guys just making money off trade but via sea travel? What's really the difference going on there? Uh, I think we find out, we get an insight into the difference through the historical, understanding a bit more of the historical context. Yeah. Historically, the merchants are probably making their money via land trade. So they're probably not doing a whole lot of sea travel themselves, but it's mostly land trade. And as we heard a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about how the Roman um, authorities would be manning a lot of the roads and the streets. And so actually traveling around the Roman Empire had become a lot safer than land travel in previous times. And so there's there's a lot less risk with trading by land compared to trading by sea. Even though Rome had control of a lot of the seas in the, in the region, there's still a lot of unforeseen stuff that can happen on the ocean that mm. can't actually happen uh, as easily on land. Mm. And so, so the idea is these guys are risk takers. These guys are the ones saying, well, we're happy to be away for a long time. We're happy to risk the danger of sea travel because we think it's going to produce for us great wealth. Mm. So I, 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 when I had 
this section in my sermon, I labeled these guys as the speculators, people who are willing to kind of take a pretty risky investment for the hope of of great reward. Mm. That's kind of the picture we're getting with these sea captains and these sailors, willing to take more risk than most Mm. in order to try and earn their riches. But again, the city is going down. These guys are throwing dust on their heads, which is just a symbol of grieving and mourning. And as then it just goes on to say that they're weeping and mourning. They cry out, woe, woe to your great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. So they're still getting wealth from Babylon as well. Uh, and their downfall is coming with Babylon I guess Babylon the difference too. would be like uh, it's, it's, it's riskier because it's the ocean and storms and yeah, things like yeah. that. But, it's, but under Babylon, i.e. Rome, mm. it wasn't as risky as it was in the days before Rome had basically conquered the Mediterranean. And so, yeah. so there was the, they got advantages from the fact that, for instance, there weren't as many pirates and all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, certainly, Is certainly. That, so, so that's why they're more – why would they be mourning? Is that even though they were speculators, they're another group that has in a sense benefited from Well, they're still be- – the, the yeah, commerce, in that sense. I but they're the also trade. still trading with Rome in the end. Yes. And, and they're still trading with the prostitute in the end. So their mm. wealth is still coming. They're taking the risk to do it via sea. Mm. So trading from fur- further away um, from Rome than what the land travellers would be. However, they are um, still making their money off, off Rome and their source of income and wealth is, is gone from that. And so I think it's a real call for people who are thinking, well, I'm going to take risk and – um, take uh, take risk, whether that's literally investments, investment risks, or whether that's risk kind of living the way I should be, or risk um, uh, my family, you know, not spending time with them, um, risk other things in life because of the pursuit of wealth. I think that's kind of the, the picture we're seeing here because these people are away for a long period of time. They're risking safety and health and benefiting other people in their life that they probably should have responsibility over in order to to make wealth. So that's think, kind of how I yeah. saw it. With so the it sounds like you put context. those three together. You've got you've got this if you've got a picture in your head of, of, of a thriving economy of of empire, the woman sitting on the on the mm. hills that that is Rome with the client kings all getting their 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 Ten percent or whatever it is, and you've got all the road travel, and you've got all the sea trading, and so you, you've just got these. It's kind of symbolic of those the three groups of all people who are riding on empire's coattails, and mm. and suddenly when when the the, the prostitutes downfall happens, mm. they're going, we're stuck. Where our our great benefactor i guess is gone yeah and and another way if you wanted wanted to break it down is you know the kings you've you've got representing power and the loss of power power. and the pursuit of wealth and success and position for power the merchants it's luxury it's that materialism Mm -hmm. because what's the focus of what babylon loses in the merchants cry is is the scarlet and the purple and the pearls and the fine jewels and here it's the riches it's it's actually the money just element of it here with the speculators we want the bigger earning and they say become uh we're all uh whoa 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 to great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth the focus then is actually Mm, the the literally becoming rich part of it uh, as well that's helpful Yeah. yeah yeah cool so now we're up to the fourth question fourth question what's that spirit of prophecy um in verse nine chapter 19 sorry verse 10 i should probably read that sounds good Revelation 19, verse 10. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Great. So we have an interesting little verse here. And so interesting because you've just had nine verses more or less of uh, groups, different groups praising God, praising God. And then suddenly Mm. John wants to fall at the feet of the angel and worship the angel. And I don't know, when I first read this, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. I'm like, oh, come on, John. Like Mm. way back at the start in chapter 17, he was intrigued and astonished by the prostitute. In a sense, you could say, oh, at least he's moved from (laughs) being drawn in from the prostitute now to the angel. But the angel doesn't, doesn't muck around, says, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant. And I think ultimately what this part of the passage is trying to do is just, again, to say to us, the whole point of this is similar to that allegiance question. We're going to be allied with the beast or with the lamb. It's like worship God. He couldn't make it any clearer kind of at this point that the the end result of this is to take our focus away from the seduction and of the prostitute and the allure of wealth, Mm. power or success riches and worship God. God, the one who wins through his lamb. And then that is made overtly clear with that last strange little phrase, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. What exactly mm. is going on there? I think you really got to take that phrase with the, the imperative to worship God. If you separate them, that's when you can get some funny things. Uh, we we listened to a song, which I'm not going to name the song, probably shouldn't recommend it. It said, says something like, uh, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then it says, that means what he did for another, he could do it again. And I hope what you're thinking now is, <laughs> what the heck does that mean? And <laughs> that is kind of what I mean by, if you don't take the imperative before worship God with the rest of it, you, you just kind of lose all meaning and end up saying things that, I don't know, maybe sound nice, but don't actually make any sense. And so that's why, yeah, we've got to take the worship God bit. So worship God is actually the focus Mm. of then that phrase. It's almost like clarifying the worship, the worship God in a way. It's almost like the, the bit where, where John's falling down there is like the, it's like the final, the final test. You've had all of this celebration and then boom, he falls down at the, at the feet of this angel and you go, no, 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 no. The whole point of all of this is Forget about false worship. Do not worship anything other than the creator. Yeah, and, and that and that's what the spirit of prophecy is. The mm. spirit of prophecy, to know if prophecy is right and true, if it mentions Jesus and it talks about Jesus and it points you to Jesus, yep. then you know it's right and true because the way to God is Jesus. Mm. If you want to worship God, you've got to go through the lamb. Yep. So how do you know if, the, if it's the spirit of prophecy? That just means how do we know if the prophecy is true and legitimate? Does it point us to Jesus? And when it says the testimony or bears testimony to Jesus, I think what they're probably referring to is the the witness that Jesus has laid down from earth to his apostles and that which continues in the teaching and that which then continues in the teaching of the apostles and prophecy that centers on Jesus is maybe Mm. crucicentric is a way you could, Mm. a word you could use for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. So if you're going to tie this all together, um, this is a question without notice. Yeah, sure. Uh, what what things struck you most as you were preparing five mm. chapters of Revelation? Yeah. What was, what's, you know, obviously there's there's a whole lot in there, but what, what was one of the things that you just went, yeah, that really, that really is the thing that I'm particularly going to take away having done the deep dive? 
Yeah, I think one of the things I actually ended up did, in, did end up including in the sermon was this idea that you know I I I fear that sometimes we think living a godly life is just a either we're legalistic about that or it's just like a kind of pull your bootstraps up and try as hard as you can just to mm. make it through this life so that we can you know, get to heaven event so that we end up in heaven. We just got to, you know, yeah. you know, just fight, fight the good fight sort of thing. But this sort of picture of wealth felt like it was contrasted with a better investment that actually mm. when you do good, it's not just, it's not simply obedience. Mm. It's actually um, we're investing in eternity in heaven. And that's only possible what, by what Jesus has done. Mm. It's not that our investment is us being really, really good and we're investing in it. Jesus is, um, the, the washing of Jesus' blood is, so pervasive that it actually means even the good things we do end up actually being good. Mm. Because before we're saved, any perceived good is actually wickedness. The Bible teaches that. And the only way our good can be ordered rightly is when Jesus has actually washed us clean and enables those righteous deeds to end up being that incredibly expensive linen. Mm. And I think that's just a much better or much more helpful way to think about living the godly life is where we end up now that we're washed clean being able to invest in our eternity by living for christ yeah i found that encouraging thanks so much brayden um there was a false conclusion in that that got edited out lucky you you don't know what it was uh so we're going to be looking again next week we're going to be continuing on where brayden left us we're going to be looking at chapter 19 verse 11 into 20 and the final judgment the victory of the lamb so i've been dave and i've been brayden see you next week bye